Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 11th, May the 11th, 2022. And um, yesterday, we had an interesting show with the fiction writer Jim Shepard, um, who rather depressingly suggested that the COVID pandemic might only be phase one in the destruction of the world. He has a new novel out, phase six. So I'm not entirely sure what phase two, three, four, and five are like, but they're all bound up, Shepard at least suggests, in our misunderstanding of the world, in our mischaracterization, knowingly or unknowingly, of science and of observing the world. This theme of not understanding the world, of misrepresenting science, is one that we've dealt with lots of times in the show. Uh, we had the economist, William Jay Bernstein on the show, suggesting that uh, our obsession or some of our obsession with conspiracy is just as dangerous as COVID-19. Bernstein has an interesting new book out, The Delusion of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups. And they seem to go particularly mad uh, in in terms of their reaction to science. We had uh, last year Lee McIntyre on the show. He has a book out about how to engage with science deniers. Um, Interesting book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. One man who's done a lot of thinking about science denial and how we should and shouldn't think about science is my guest today, James C. Zimring. Uh, He had a really interesting and successful book in 2019, I think, Uh, What is science and how it really works? Um, He asks whether or not science describes experience or truth. It's a complicated question, but Zimmering, who teaches at uh, UVA, University of Virginia uh, in Charlottesville, uh, is someone who's done a very good job translating the complexity of science into everyday language. Uh, He's one of the contributors to an increasingly important public debate about science. And I'm thrilled that Zimmering is joining us today. He has a new book out, came out yesterday. It's called Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. So in a sense, it's part two of, um, uh, of his book about what science is and how it really works. And as I said, uh, Jim uh, Zimmering is joining us from Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, Jim, beforehand, you asked me, what should I, shouldn't I do in terms of this conversation? And I rather facetiously said, don't be boring. But perhaps, Jim, one has to be a little bit boring in terms of explaining what science is. It can't always be popularized and turned into this sort of Twitter-like sexy uh, conversation. Mm. Is science in some ways, necessarily and healthily boring? Not to me, probably not to most professional scientists. I'd make a distinction between being boring and being reflective, right? It's certainly not um, uh, as flashy, I guess, as maybe a, a Twitter account goes, but it's very exciting to investigate and at times uncover the mechanistic underpinnings of our world. I'm not sure what could be more exciting than that. 
Jim, why has science become such a polemical issue? Why do we have science deniers? And why do we need guys like you and Lee McIntyre and uh, Jim Shepard and, and Bernstein and all the others who, who need to explain what science is and isn't, who need to explain the limitations of science? You know, science, the, the knowledge claims that science makes can be pretty counterintuitive. The knowledge claims that science makes can go against our senses and, and what common sense belief is. And, you know, as authorities, at times self-proclaimed authorities, it is not enough. It should not be enough to say, trust me, I'm an authority. And we need to be able to explain how science works and what the basis of knowledge claims are. And importantly, what it means when a scientist says they know something, because it's different than what it means when other people say they know something. If you exaggerate the, the truth statements and then things go wrong, people feel betrayed, rightly so and they won't believe you in the future. And I think that science and scientists have a challenge communicating with non-scientists around these types of concepts. And that's particularly relevant, I think, in terms of this new book, um, Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. Correct me, Jim, if I'm wrong, but you seem to be suggesting that almost naturally fractions distort our thinking. I'm not sure whether this is part of cognitive psychology or of behavioral economics. I'm not a, entirely sure on what the difference is between cognitive psychology and behavioral economics. But are you suggesting in Partial Truths that fractions are hard and that we're wired in a way, our, our brains are wired in a way that we almost naturally misunderstand them? Well, I... Yes, and we naturally understand them too. It's a fairly intuitive concept. We use terms like a half, you know, one in a million. We know what these things mean. They're, they are fractions. But it doesn't take much tweaking of um, some of the mathematical concepts before what is common sense thinking is the opposite of what is really the case. And that's what is often called innumeracy, people not understanding what numbers mean. But that's just one of the, the themes of this book. The other theme is that, and I am not saying, by the way, that we have fractions in our brains, that our brains are like little calculators that use math to come to conclusions. That's not the case. But I, what I am saying is that a number of the common cognitive errors that humans have, or I should say cognitive traits, because they're not always errors, can be understood using the concept of a fraction as a lens to kind of understand the process without actually being a fraction itself. Uh, you know, math is just a language, a symbolic language with special properties. And a fraction is just a representation of if you have a population of things, how many of those things have a certain property. And once you see the world through that lens, you can understand a, a lot of how humans think in special ways. So what is what, what one man is often dragged up in these conversations, quite rightly, I think, is the, the great scribe, philosopher, and baseball player, Yogi Berra, um, who seemed to capture our lack of reason when it comes to fractions. He famously said uh, when he was in a pizza restaurant, you better cut the pizza into four pieces because I'm not hungry enough to eat six. In other words, uh, you, he assumed that four pieces of pizza uh, would have filled him 
uh, less than six, even though it would have been the same. He also famously said baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. We kind of understand what Vera is saying, but it's um, it, it's a distortion, isn't it? And and I know, Jim, you, you bring up Vera at the beginning of your book. He, he is a good example of how we both simultaneously seem to capture the importance of fractions and yet simultaneously misrepresent them. Well, if the reason he's funny, and I've heard people debate whether he was intentionally being funny or not, but the reason he's funny is that his statements obviously violate intuitive uh, properties of fractions. You can't have more than 100%, and a pizza is the same amount of pizza regardless of how much you cut it into. Is it really, though? And I, I was thinking about this quote. Um, <laughs> is there a mental element of, you know, when you're dieting, for, for example, people say you should cut your, your food into smaller pieces because we think differently about it. What does the science say about that? Well, we may think differently about it, but if you cut your food into smaller pieces, you still have the same absolute amount of food. But it doesn't take much for people to, in real life, get misguided by these simple concepts. So this is a comical example also, but a real example that A&W, the restaurant chain, wanted to take on McDonald's, the Big Mac, uh, which had been a dominant force in the market since it was introduced. And so they came up with a new product that was more meat, that tasted better in blinded taste tests, and was cheaper. It, was, it came in at a whopping third pound of meat, but it didn't do very well. It was a really a flop. And after the fact, when they did market analysis to try to figure out why, they determined that a lot of people thought that a third pound was less than a quarter pound because three is less than four. Now, you tell that story to people and a lot of people say, oh, haha, you know, yeah, that couldn't happen to me. And, and, and maybe not um, for many people, but all it takes is a small a twist of these types of issues where we lead to examples of prosecutors and juries convicting innocent people over probability arguments that are completely um, misguided, but they, they sound like they ought to be true. So these are, these are very serious things. And this is the part of the book that is about innumeracy. When we're given facts and figures, oftentimes we don't understand them because of the form they're in. And sometimes we don't understand them because they're in a fractional form, but we don't know what makes up the parts of the fraction, the assumptions baked into it. And it just leads to an awful lot of misunderstanding. Is the fix then, Jim, just more fractional education? I don't even remember my math education. I was always a, a bad student broadly and particularly in math. So it's, do kids simply need to, to be taught more about fractions? I don't think so. I mean, people learn and forget an awful lot. And yes, I mean, more education is always a better thing. But what when we're talking about the cognitive error portion of this, what is obvious is that the following approach does not work. To teach people the types of errors we make, they say, oh, yes, okay, I, I can recognize that. That's an error. And they say, okay, you make these types of errors. Now, don't do that anymore. That doesn't work for a couple reasons. One, it's intuitive, common sense, we do it automatically. Two, we're really not aware that we do it. And so if you're if you're going to try to teach people how not to make these errors, you have to take slightly different approaches and use terminology in, in different ways. 
and give them the right kind of what's called domain knowledge so that they can apply what they've learned in the right settings. So yeah, math education is a good thing, but we need to be a bit more broad than that. We need to teach cognitive psychology principles and critical thinking skills in a way that human brains are able to receive them. And that's been a real challenge for the field of uh, pedagogy research because understanding how human thinking goes wrong is a very different task than understanding how you might give humans the tools they need to mitigate those errors. I know you bring up the Peloponnesian War in one of your anecdotes in the book, but in terms of the idea of a fraction, who invented it? Was was it the ancient Greeks? I mean, this is not uh, this is not a concept that has existed forever. What is the history of the fraction? I uh, will do you the honor of not pretending to know things I don't, and I'm not aware of the history as we know it of who first represented fractions in the way that uh, they are mathematically, but I would submit to you that intuitively humans understand breaking a piece of fruit in half, and maybe one piece is bigger than the other, and who's going to get their fair share. A lot of our cognitive processes work best and evolved in the context of social contracts, when you take um, a number of the cognitive errors that you can demonstrate people make in the laboratory and you put them in the context of a social contract or figuring out if other humans are cheating you in some, some arrangement, suddenly humans do extremely well. So a lot of the problem probably is that, you know, evolution happens at a glacial pace, technology explodes at a geometric pace. And so our minds are struggling to catch up with a changing environment, which, by the way, we changed, and we're, we're lagging behind quite a bit. Jim, I'm intrigued with the subtitle of the book. Um, it's got a lovely title, Partial Truths. How fractions distort our thinking. Does that suggest that there's some sort of original ideal condition of our thinking? Because to distort something means there must have been something before it. That's a very interesting uh, question. Um, You know, I think that we can agree that the world is what it is, or at least I think most people accept there is some external reality, that we have limited access to whatever it really is because things are filtered through our perceptions and our minds and all that. I would hold our, our minds can fundamentally distort the world and fractions can help us understand that without there being some core, pure human understanding. I don't think there was ever the, the original human mind that was unperverted until fractions came along. I just think it's a way of understanding how we get things wrong and in, 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 in very particular ways. And so you're suggesting that it's socially almost almost politically based, that it's based on property, on how much is mine and how much is yours. Well, I think that th- that is certainly the genesis of, of this type of thinking. Yeah. I mean, you know, we game theory, right? The whole field of game theory is basically how humans evolved. We are trying to gain advantage for ourselves, um, but also work as a group because that is advantageous to us. And so when people start cheating or social contracts break down, you, humans have to be very attuned uh, to that. Otherwise, they'll soon find themselves taken advantage of. But in the modern you know, world, we're given a lot to think about 
in numerical form and things are distorted an awful lot where we don't necessarily understand that there's a fraction going on. I'll give you an example. At, when the pandemic was really rolling out, uh, it was reported in the newspapers that the unemployment rate was dropping and the average wage was going up. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? That, that doesn't sound like a world that's collapsing. Well, why would that be? Well, you have to understand where the numbers come from. Unemployment rate, right? So rate is a fraction, is the number of unemployed people over um, everyone who's looking for a job. Not over everyone. If you included retired people and infants, it would, it would make a ridiculous determination. Everyone is looking for a job. So the unemployment rate can go down if a bunch of people find jobs, but it can also go down if a bunch of people find it so hard to find a job that they give up and just quit because now they're kicked out of the fraction. And the average wage is just that, it's an average. And the average wage can go up if everybody earns more money on average, right? Or, or people, certain people earn more money. But the average wage can also go up if the lowest earning jobs disappear. No one's getting paid more, but the average goes up. So now you have a situation where unemployment rate drops and the average wage goes up simul you know, both in both cases, the economy is doing great and the economy is collapsing. So we're given these numbers, but we don't necessarily know what they mean in context because we don't necessarily know how the parts of the fraction are constituted in the data that's collected. This is just this is just one example. And it goes on and on in our, in our politics and the government figures that we're given when um, drug makers give us data about their product, when new age practitioners tell us we should do this or that, self-help books classic example all right so self-help books which i promise you are going to sell a lot more copies than mine ever will because they're very popular you'll hear things like the seven habits of highly effective people right yeah or, we've done so many shows on that and in fact um sorry to interrupt jim but no it's good whenever whenever i have a guest who tells me the research shows x i always know that it does <laughs> it's by definition they're not necessarily making it up, but they're making an argument, borrowing from numbers which are often manipulated, sometimes more than more than manipulated or simply lies. We're talking with uh, James C. Zimmering, the author of Partial Truths, one of um, one of America's leading practitioners of 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 of, of the uh, of the truth of science and and the limitations on science. It's a really interesting new book. It's just out. Um, he uh, is also, in it, and it got blurbed by Lee McIntyre, How to Talk to a Science Denier. So there's a, there's a whole community of, uh, of people out there writing about this. Uh, James, we're going to, Jim, we're going to take a, a short break now. And I want to come back and I want to talk inflation, one of the most confusing things which is in the headlines today. So I'm going to take a 60 second break and we'll be back with James C. Zingring, the author of Partial Truths. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. 
And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back on Keenon, where 86% I've heard of our listeners are very happy with our interviews. <laughs> that, of course, is a joke. We are we are talking partial truths today, how fractions distort our thinking with James C. Zingring. And uh, before the break, um, Jim suggested that very often numbers or fractions are used to manipulate our thinking by marketers, by perhaps even propagandists of, of one kind or another. Jim, um, today uh, the headlines, the Financial Times are full of Headlines about U.S. inflation staying at a 40-year high. But when you get into the details, it gets even more confusing. U.S. consumer prices apparently rose 8.3%, which isn't as much as we think. It was a step down from the 8.5% increase uh, and slightly higher than the economist expectations of an 8.1% increase. So when you look at, say, for example consumer price uh, graph on, on the New York Times. It's just It just gives you a headache. Do you think we should simply do away with a lot of these percentages? Because as you've suggested, they're, they're so misleading and they're so easy to manipulate politically, culturally, commercially. I don't think we should do away with them at all because they are essential gauges of our economy and other things we need to monitor. But I think we should make sure that they're being presented accurately and that we inter interpret them and understand them correctly. I mean, we're coming up on campaign season. So how many times have you heard, and I promise you, you're going to hear again, people say things like, you know, the economy increased more under my presidency than any other president. We made created more jobs under my presidency than any other president, my opponent lost more jobs than any other president. And again, this is just the top of a fraction, which is a, a percentage, because of, of course it's easy to make more jobs than anyone before you if the economy is larger, right? It's, it's easier for it to increase in value more if the economy is larger. In 1929, when the stock market crashed, it went down by 182 points because at the time it only had about a $380 value. Well, today that's, that's just going down, you know, just not even a partially bad day. So in the past week, the Dow Jones has dropped 10 times more than it did during the 1929 crash. That statement as itself sounds pretty scary, right? But taken in context of the denominator, it, it doesn't mean that much at all. So no, we, we need our metrics. Uh, we just need people not to manipulate them 
in in a way that plays to what sounds right to us, but is clearly wrong. The politicians, of course, will unavoidably and inevitably misrepresent numbers and fractions, Jim. Uh, do you have models in the book of people who do it right, who we should try and emulate and copy, who are responsible when it comes to the representation of fractions? Well, to begin with, I think that not purposely trying to twist information would be a good start, right? So I, I hope we can all agree on that. Um, but that's not enough because we make honest mistakes and, and we do it on our own. Now, science, um, which obviously I'm biased towards because I'm, I am a professional scientist, is not perfect. It does make mistakes. But a central theme of scientific methodology is to use approaches that we know mitigate or minimize errors that exist. And the more types of errors we learn about, the methodology is refined to try and mitigate or eliminate those errors, which is not a practice you necessarily see in other areas of exploring the world or trying to come up with knowledge claims. And I think that it's essential that if we know there's a source of an error, that we try and get rid of it. I'm, I'm taken by an example of Ted Cruz, who made a claim that the, the earth is not getting warmer. And he took, you know, close to um, 100 years of data, which showed an obvious upward trend. And he chose two data points, 18 years apart, that were anomalies. So the, the earlier data point was artificially high. It was just a very high year. And the later data point was an artificially low year. And if you compare just those two points, there there is not an increase. Actually, there, there still was an increase in the temperature. There wasn't an increase in the the rate at which the earth was warming, which is another, another misrepresentation of the information. But my point is that if we have data, right, we have information, let's look it in the eye and debate it as a society. We may decide as a society that the economic and disruption around changing to non-fossil fuels simply isn't worth uh, what we would gain from it. That's not a view I would hold, but we might have a reasoned debate and come to that conclusion by majority. But let's at least look at the data as the data are. Let's not pervert them and twist them disingenuously and purposefully to try to manipulate an outcome. And if you look at the, the ethics of science, you know, there's a lot of labels that a scientist can hold, you know, very unpleasant labels. Trust me, I, I've heard people called a lot of them. But the one label a scientist cannot handle is liar. Because that, that violates the central tenant of, of scientific ethos. It'd be awfully nice. Uh, if we were to apply that broadly. Yeah, perhaps we should just not allow Ted Cruz to talk about fractions. I think that would be in everyone's benefit. Um, well, to be fair, wait, I don't... Well, sorry, I don't wait, wait, yeah, sorry, sorry, go on. I don't want to pick on Ted Cruz, right? This is a... It, you know, we're in a time of political polemics, and I will tell you, broadly, politicians and many, many areas do this, on, on both sides. And there's examples from the Obama administration and, and other administrations. Certainly, if you look at the, the Vietnam conflict, which was mostly Democratic administrations who were twisting data and lying to the populace, this should not be allowable across the board. So Ted Cruz, yes, but many people also. What about COVID? Uh, you're a professor of experimental pathology at the University of Virginia. So this is an area you know a lot about. Um, we, uh, we had Eric Topol, one of America's leading, uh, authorities on, on the pandemic on the show recently. 
he had a piece out recently arguing that the booster program has been botched from day one, um, partly because of the misrepresentation in terms of um, what the booster does and doesn't do for you. Are we more or less scientifically literate post-COVID, Jim, uh, than we were before COVID? Has it simply made some of us more literate and others of us less literate, more more suspicious of science? What does the world look like post-COVID rather than pre-COVID in terms of uh, the arguments you make in partial truths or are they, or is the world really the same? I'm going to ask you to define in your terms what scientific literacy is because there is disagreement over what that term means. Uh, now you're picking on me. Uh, <laughs> Not my intention. No, uh, it, it's a fair question. We'll say, in, 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 sorry, in terms of, um, in terms of uh, COVID, uh, a literacy in terms of what the vaccine and the booster, whether or not it, it, it reduces one's risk, not just of disease, but of death. Uh, right. and, and and not listening to, and I don't want to pick just on Ted Cruz, but the Ted Cruz's of the world, mm. and I, I don't even know what Cruz says about boosters, but who, who, who suggests that all this stuff's being misrepresented. Uh, Trump, I guess, was a good example of someone who yeah. seemed to really misrepresent and manipulate the data according to his own particular interests. I, you know, I don't have a specific data. If by scientific literacy, some people mean um, how well versed are individuals in the knowledge claims that science makes, I think that we're probably about the same. I mean, I don't know this for a fact. We're probably about the same that we we were. We hear the claims that that science makes, but I would speculate that the distrust of science has has grown, particularly around this issue because of of identity politics where when you have members you know you have members of congress uh grilling uh cdc dr fauci etc you know it's very good for them to say well you're suggesting x y and z what would the ramifications of that be because these are what the data tell you but to say that you're lying that that the data you're this is not true the vaccine does not work masks do not work. Um, that is that is grotesquely irresponsible. Unless, by the way, they have specific reasons to question the data. If there are flaws in the data, methodologically, scientifically, that's actually good science, right? Good. I, I make a joke, but this is true. My my ten best professional friends are are people who I see at international conferences. And they come to the microphone in public and try to discredit my ideas in front of the field. And I do the same thing to them. That's a good thing. But we don't say you're a liar. We don't say you're manipulating things because for your evil ends. We say, you know, I'm concerned about how you collected the data. I'm concerned about your interpretation of it, you know, statistically. But that's not what we're hearing, our broader dialogue. Once you, in, in fact, it, the book goes into this that humans are very good at reasoning together. Actually, disagreement and reflective debate is one of the best ways humans think. But when trust breaks down, humans polarize and get things wrong, and it's really rather terrible. So I would say, if by scientific literacy you mean how much do people trust science, 
well, around COVID, it, it, it looks pretty grim. Now, whether that's people didn't trust it anyway, and we just see that coming out because of the environment, I don't know. But it's hard to look at the world today and say, yeah, science has a pretty good reputation right now. You know, it doesn't. Yeah, and finally, uh, I, I wonder whether there are now two Americas. Robert Reich had an interesting piece in The Guardian about the second American Civil War is already here, uh, two Americas, and those two Americas are perhaps in, in part at least defined by their attitude to science. Is that possible, Jim? Does, do, are you fearful that one half, if you want to use fractions, or approximately a half of Americans believe in science and the other half don't? I think that people believe, well, I think that there are there are all kinds of people, right? So, but the, the type of problems we're talking about, not to be entirely cynical, I think people tend to believe science when it gives answers that they like that are convenient to their belief construct. And they tend to disbelieve science when it gives answers that they don't like. I think that what's I think that if if science suddenly came out with a bunch of knowledge claims, they were very conservative, uh, that suddenly the Republican base that we're talking about here would embrace science full throated. I think that that's how humans tend to work. We are we have conclusions and then we find reasons after the fact to justify what we already believe. Not all of us, not all the time, but it is certainly a trend of ours. I think that's actually quite encouraging. I think that's good <laughs> news. Uh, and it probably is manifested in the fact that the Republicans now are using these inflation numbers in a quote unquote scientific way, whereas the Democrats are trying to hide the numbers. So maybe, maybe uh, Jim, uh, your news in partial truths and in your general work is more encouraging than it seems. Maybe... Um, Maybe you should cheer up. <laughs> I will give it an honest go if you think that will Well, thank you. And uh, congratulations again on the new book, Partial Truths. Thanks. How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. Very intriguing original take on fractions. Uh, what else are you reading these days, Jeremy? Well, to keep I actually... yourself sane and cheerful. Well, I don't know about sane and cheerful. Um, I'm rereading one of my uh, favorite books that's relevant to this topic called The Enigma of Reason um, by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. But a new book that I've, I've stumbled on that I've, I'm really getting into and I think is extremely uh, provocative is Language Versus Reality, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists. And it's uh, it's by wow. N.J. Enfield. It just came out. So I'm not I'm not finished with it yet. I suppose it's possible the last chapter, you know, twists in a way that I find obnoxious. But this is a extremely thought provoking and excellent book. Yeah, we can blame everything on lawyers. Um, <laughs> or uh, language. <laughs> that's an interesting one. I have to get them on the show. Uh, finally, uh, Jim um, or James C. Zimmering, the author of Partial Truths in uh, on May the 11th, 2022. Who, who runs the world, Jim? Who's in charge of things? Well, forgive my cynicism, but until the Supreme Court overturns Citizens United, it's the same people that have been running the, the country or the world ever since then, which are the large money interests that can manipulate the political system through their influence.